to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1997, Kirk Savage wrote a book about the origins of Civil War monuments that impressed his peers in the Academy, even if it didn't make the bestseller lists. After all, who beyond the kind of people who listen to shows like this one cares about what Civil War monuments mean? 21 years later, the topic has exploded into public controversy, sometimes violent, from Charlottesville to New Orleans to Chapel Hill. Tonight, we step away from the heat and into the calm, scholarly light generated by someone who began thinking about this issue more than two decades ago. Join us for a conversation with Kirk Savage, author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race, War, and Monument in 19th Century America. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, spared from the recent ravages of Hurricane Florence. I am not speaking for Hurricane Florence or ECU or anyone else tonight, never do, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself. Uh, It is the last show before fall break. Fall break is a pale imitation of spring break and the annual bacchanalia the students indulge in. Uh, It's only two days off next week so we'll we'll be back here next week with you but 
it is uh, the halfway marker of the fall semester, and it's hard to believe we are there already. The football season proceeds apace. The Pirates of East Carolina won their game last weekend, a uh, sight miraculous to behold for all of us in Pirate Nation. Uh, the week before, they lost to South Florida. I think I said Central Florida in last week's show. I can't keep those directional schools straight, said the guy from East Carolina. Uh and the uh, the other football pirates, the, uh, the the original football, the soccer team, uh, women's soccer team won their game on Sunday against first place. Uh, I think it was SMU. So uh, they are doing better. They have a new coach this year, and they are playing with more uh, physicality and discipline and uh, uh, just uh, more recognizable tactics than, than I can remember them doing in the past. It's fun to watch. In uh, other upcoming things to report, a reminder that the Civil War Institute is something you may want to look into next June, June 14th through 19th. Go to their website to find out more about it, the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. And while I'm making uh, unsolicited plugs for various organizations, I'm reminded that the Lincoln Forum is coming up as well, November 16th to 18th, 2018. If you've downloaded this show and waited months to listen to it, maybe you've already missed that date. Uh, but November 16 to 18, it's Lincoln Forum number 23. Uh, Ed Ayers, David Blight, uh, Andrew Del Banco, Kate Major, Frank Williams, Harold Holzer, Craig Simons, John Marzlick, Catherine Clinton, Edna Green Medford, uh, others. It's always an interesting program. If you've never been to the Lincoln Forum, it is always held at Gettysburg around the time of the memorial address and always uh, brings together a large audience of interested non-professional scholars along with people in the field to interact. It is, it is the public historian's dream, uh, an excited, uh, interested public that wants to hear what historians say and engaged historians happy to talk to people other than their peers who are busy with their own work. Uh, so if you have never been, it's, it's highly worth checking it out. Um, if you're not doing that, if you're just staying home and listening, there are more good shows coming up here on Civil War Talk Radio in the weeks ahead. Next week, Peter Charles Hoffer will be with us. He uh, has written about lawyers in the Civil War, a book called Uncivil Warriors, a chance to uh, work up the, the lawyer jokes. I'll have a week to think about that. Then on October 17th, Lee Elder gives us, uh, gets us back to the military angle with that bloody hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. On the 24th of October, we'll have Christopher Stowe. He's a professor of military history uh, in the War Studies Department at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. And we'll talk not about the Marines particularly, but about his work generally. Uh, training military officers and using the Civil War battlefields in Virginia uh, as laboratories uh, and other things. And then on the last day of the month, it's Halloween, Greenville degenerates into a uh, giant outdoor party that that is always uh, of concern to everyone who's not participating. So instead of doing a live show that night, I will cower in my uh, office 
and play for you the recorded interview from last summer's Civil War Institute with Elizabeth Pernitza, the historian and site manager at the Chancellorsville Visitor Center uh, of the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, and also Tim Talbot, director of education at the Pamplin Historical Park. Uh, two places, again, if you've never been, you obviously do not want to miss. I am looking at the stack of upcoming books. There are many more interesting shows lined up for the rest of this fall season. And already the spring season is is filling rapidly. So many good books have come out, and uh, people have sent me great suggestions for authors to contact and uh, talk to and talk about and there's never any uh, difficulty I'll say this in in finding people finding interesting topics for the show or at least topics that I find interesting and I hope you do as well but having said that I welcome all further suggestions please keep sending them in that is where some of the best topics come from Uh, tonight's topic uh, is very timely as we've said in the introduction, memorials of the Civil War are a important political topic today. Uh, the book in question, though, was one that I borrowed from our British historian, uh, Professor Tim Jenks, whose office is down the hall, and I don't know if I saw it on his desk and said, oh yeah, I, I need to call that guy, and he said, he lent me the book, and uh, I read it, and, and here we are tonight. So let's go ahead and bring in our guest tonight. He is uh, Kirk Savage, the William S. Dietrich II Professor in the History of Art and Architecture at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Professor Savage, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, thanks very much for having me. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, May I call you Kirk as we've been corresponding? Sure, uh, uh, Please call me Jerry, because that is a a handful of a title. Uh, I assume you don't require the students (laughs) to use it uh, each time they address you. (laughs) No, I, uh, you know, I sort of feel legally required to put the entire name down. <laughs> well, uh, so my university, my university will know that I am well, giving the right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've earned it, and, and you should absolutely use it every opportunity. So, uh, this was a, a fascinating book that you you wrote some time ago, uh, but has. Uh, sprung into public attention. But let me start by asking you first, uh, was the Civil War a long-standing interest of yours uh, before you wrote this? Uh, does it remain uh, a current interest of yours? Where does this book fit in your uh, research arc? Yeah, yeah well, the, the answer to all of that is yes. Um, <laughs> I, I was interested in the Civil War long before I wrote it, you know, when I was a kid, um, mm-hmm. it, partly because my father's family is entirely from Alabama and goes back deep into the, you know, early 19th century in Alabama uh, in sort of the Piedmont area of north uh, west Alabama. And I subsequently found out that I actually fought on both sides of, of mm. the of the war, which is really quite amazing, um, and uh, because they came from a heavily unionist area in Alabama, and so you know, I grew up hearing a bit, probably more about the Civil War than 
an ordinary Californian would. <laughs> and uh, we visited battlefields. I was very interested in battle history when I was a teenager. Uh, and so <laughs> that was always in, that was always a kind of hobby of mine. I never actually really expected to, to be working on it as an art history graduate student. Uh, I certainly wasn't um, encouraged to work on it as an art history graduate student. I mean, everybody thought I was nuts uh, when I got the idea. The, the main reason I, I was really interested in looking at Civil War monuments was I'd become very interested in public monuments uh, because I was really interested in, in how they captured public attention, became controversial, and took on all of these really important kind of political and social meanings. So it was a, an area of art history where I, I saw kind of immediate societal impact. And so I was really interested in those questions of, you know, why did design issues suddenly become political and controversial? And so when I looked at, you know, I'd written on the Washington Monument, I'd written on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. When, when I was looking at a dissertation topic, I was thinking, you know, these are, this is the most common kind of monument in the United States, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, someone should deal with it, right? And so that was my initial um, motivation. So do you ever, I want to return later this evening uh, to the question of what's going on now, but does it ever strike you? Did you ever want to, to, I suppose, grab a TV commentator by the shoulders and say, I've been looking at this for 25 years. Uh, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Well, um, yes. And, you know, actually for a long time I wanted to grab people by the shoulders and, and say, you know, you really need to look at these monuments more carefully and more seriously, you know. Um, I really, it, it was such a so surprise be to what me. You wish for. Way, yeah, see. exactly. <laughs> you know, so it was such a surprise to me when the time came. I never really anticipated that the time would come when, uh, that when this kind of controversy would burst out into the mainstream and, you know, it would become a political issue that would be talked about in campaigns for, you know, mm-hmm. the governor of Virginia and so on. And when people would seriously consider removing these monuments, uh, I really did not expect that to be happening because, you know, while I was working on these monuments in the late 80s and well into the 90s, you know, they were being restored. I mean, Confederate monuments were being restored, sometimes even rededicated uh, at that time. So... Uh, then when the controversy first started hitting, yeah, I did, you know, sort of feel, feel that, well, some of us have really done a lot of work on this subject and it might, be, <laughs> it might be interesting for you guys to really get up to speed. And it, it was interesting though, because people actually did get up to speed, you know, within a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. I started to hear arguments that, you know, I had been, actually trying to make in my own book that hadn't gotten a lot of traction, but all of a sudden people were talking about, you know, Confederate monuments and white supremacy in ways that they had never been doing before. And clearly some people were doing their homework, you know, and reading books like mine or David Blight's, Mm -hmm. you know. um, So it it really became interesting to see that out in the public arena, even in, um, you know, the speeches that, 
Mitch Landrieu gave in New Orleans, you could tell he had been, or his speechwriters had been reading mm-hmm. up on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought I remember commenting uh, from a public historian's view in, in thinking about monuments and their meaning that the public discourse had gone from like a, a D to a B minus in a remarkably short time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's that's yeah, pretty good way of characterizing it. Yeah. So let me pull back to the, the beginning, uh, even before the Civil War. One thing that I found. Uh, enlightening in reading your book was uh, being reminded that before the Civil War, there really were no monuments in the United States to speak of, certainly not anything like the scale. Uh, This is all new territory uh, when people start commemorating the Civil War. Right, yes. And so, yeah, that was also kind of a shock for me to, to learn as I was studying the phenomenon of the public monument in the 19th century in the U.S. It really, pre- especially previous wars, had never been mm-hmm. commemorated in anything like the way that the Civil War was. And the military itself was such a different institution and was so um, much, uh, in many ways, despised, you know, as an institution in the in the United States. I mean, there was a lot of controversy about even having having a standing army, and then. Mm-hmm. The army itself was often ridiculed as, you know, just a, a, a kind of institution full of drunkards and, you know, and immigrants who didn't speak English and, you know, that kind of thing. So as a sort of last resort, you know, <laughs> employer. And um, so it was really interesting to see that dramatic shift after the Civil War, you know, after the, you know, first really large scale mass mobilized war in the history of this country and how much everything changed after that, you know, public monuments, but also, you know, the national cemetery system and all these other kind of changes in, in how the nation and the nation's communities, their responsibility that they felt towards the dead and also the veterans. It, it certainly, say it was a dramatic change. Um, we're going to take a short break right now and come back in just a few minutes. We're talking tonight with Kirk Savage, author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race, War, and Monument in 19th Century America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. 
to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kirk Savage, author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race, War, and Monument in 19th Century America. Uh, listeners, one of the fundamental problems with tonight's show is we'll, as we're talking about art, particularly monumental art, sculptures on top of pedestals, uh, you can't see them. We're, we're talking, so uh, open another window in your browser and, and Google these statues and monuments when we're talking about them and you can keep track of it. Um, some are familiar. For, uh, for example, the cover image of, of the edition I'm looking at has a picture of uh, the Emancipation Memorial or Freedmen's Memorial in Washington, D.C., a Thomas Ball statue that uh, uh, I'm sure you've all seen of Abraham Lincoln standing over a kneeling enslaved figure. Uh, uh, and we'll talk about how that came to be in just a few minutes. But if you if you've never seen that one, uh, quick Google Thomas Ball and, and uh, uh, catch up with us. So, uh, Kirk, one of the interesting things, uh, uh, there are lots of great tidbits throughout this book, uh, was your pointing out that most of these monuments, the major monuments uh, that follow the Civil War, are designed by sculptors uh, who we expect to, to craft the figure on top of the pedestal. But they actually design the whole thing. You don't get an architect to uh, build the monument and then the sculptor puts a puts a guy on top of it. Rather, they have the uh, the sculptors doing the whole thing, and uh, that may account for some of the uh, curious uh, artistic results that come about. Yeah, well, you know the 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 public monument in that in that era was really thought of as you know images of heroes and so the sculptor you know was the lead figure in the design of almost every public monument um, with some notable exceptions uh, so you know really the language was the human figure and uh, the sculptors you know would often get 
some kind of help, but it was usually, you know, unnamed draftsmen or whatever who would design a pedestal. And in the case of the monument industry, which then grew up to start mass producing these monuments, they mm-hmm. were they actually often had, you know, really skilled masonry or, you know, carvers, you know, who did who who did the pedestal work and they contracted out to a sculptor who would put the figure on, on top. But um, generally speaking, you're right in the in the in the major monuments it was generally the sculptor who was the lead designer. And um, that was where the meaning, you know, of the monument really resided. Now, in terms of conveying meaning, the, the you know, sculpture has a, a, a language uh, just as you know, sounds. You know, there there are very, various languages, and you talk about how the uh, the the in in the nineteenth century in the United States, the country is wrestling with with how to use classical sculptural language for. Uh, do you portray George Washington in a toga uh, in classical style or? Is there some new American style we need to come up with? And we particularly run into that, as you described in the first couple chapters, with the question of portraying uh, African Americans, enslaved people. How how do they get uh, portrayed in American sculpture? What can you talk about that issue? Yeah, sure. So that was that was really a paradox, you know, at at the heart of all of this because. Um, the whole sculptural tradition in the Euro-American sculptural tradition, as you say, was a classical tradition, which by this point in the 19th century had become racialized. So the great kind of works of Greek sculpture that were seen to be the kind of founding works of sculpture for the entire tradition going all the way into the 19th century, those had become kind of icons of whiteness in um, in racial thinking and, and often used as illustrations of white racial superiority. So when, uh, with that in mind, with that kind of uh, uh, way of understanding the classical sculptural tradition, you can see kind of right away how difficult it would be to insert African-Americans or enslaved peoples into that tradition because they had been taken as the opposite of, you know, classical whiteness. Uh, and so it became a real... So that's one reason why African-Americans and slaves never appeared in sculpture in the U.S. Um, before around 1860 uh, in marble or bronze. Um, and it took a real rethinking of... Uh, the black figure in a way to get to put the black figure into monumental sculpture uh, required you know some rethinking some drastic rethinking on the part of the sculptors thinking about how can we make these bodies that have been kind of always denigrated how can we make them into bodies that are worthy of sculpture I, I was uh, and, and I, oh go ahead mm-hmm. So, I mean, part of my, the argument of my book is that, uh, particularly for the northern monuments in the late 1860s, that this is one of the reasons that emancipation monuments ultimately failed, because they really couldn't see their way out of that box that they were in. They couldn't reimagine race in a liberating way in sculpture. Now, there was almost a moment before the Civil War, and I just found this really fascinating, uh, 
when the 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 sculptor Henry Kirk Brown, who's a northerner, is almost hired to create uh, a monumental work featuring lots of figures of slaves for the state of South Carolina. Yeah, so this is a really fascinating project. It would have been the largest uh, sculptural undertaking in the United States up to that point in time if it had been completed. It was, so it was for the whole pediment of the, the entrance, over the entrance to the South Carolina State House, and it was going to feature these extensive scenes of both rice uh, enslaved laborers in rice fields and cotton fields producing these you know crops that had come to be identified with South Carolina and its economy and that was precisely a place where this whole problem of how to represent um, kind of slave labor in sculpture you know reared its head because they couldn't they couldn't represent the figure heroically but they couldn't but they also wanted to in a sense represent them to honor these figures as the you know, backbone of the of the economy of their state. So it was a very strange project, and it it wasn't completed because the Civil War intervened and the the project had to be halted. Um, it would have been fascinating to see it had it been completed. You know, whether it would have you know what the reaction would have been. It it really is. You point out the contradiction by this time. By, by certainly by 1860, the South has adopted the the John C. Calhoun argument that slavery is a positive good, it's superior to northern free labor. So if you're going to portray this superior labor system, uh, you can't have caricatures of shuffling darkies uh, because that's not superior to free labor. But you can't have heroic, uh, strong, heroic, independent workers because that's not slavery. there, right, exactly. So what, what can you do? Yeah. They were up <laughs> against it. Uh, right. So, so the you know the sculptor came up with a kind of compromise to put them into sort of somewhat bent you know uh, positions in which they didn't look um, like heroes. You know, fully erect, uh, like the kind of people who deserve to be paid <laughs> for their labor. Right. Um, and. Uh, it was a kind of tightrope act that that he was um, in the midst of, and in the midst of this highly contradictory and paradoxical project. Uh, and what's so interesting about it is that most of the time in the South, this problem, you know, there was a huge problem about visualizing slavery because most of that was done by abolitionists. So this was sort of the first major project where uh, you know, white South, white Southern elite took on the problem of okay, we are going to represent slavery in 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 a way that can, that is consistent with the positive good thesis, uh, and it just put them into you know a whole series of contradictions. Now, the uh, the point about abolitionists portraying slavery, I guess most listeners have seen at some point the image, uh, the, the drawn image of a, a kneeling uh, African person with the caption, am I not a man and a brother? Uh, and, and the person is holding his hands upraised and, and on one knee. And that image will be repeated uh, in, in some of these early emancipation monuments that you talk about in the book. 
but it, it gets us back to the problem of how how are black people to be portrayed in in sculpture uh, with the the Freedmen's Memorial becoming the focal point of that. Uh, right, and 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 so you know this is one thing that artists tend to do; they tend to fall back on precedents and prototypes and. So the major one that was out there, this was the major image of of uh, black people in the United States at that time was the, this kneeling figure, the "Am I not a man and a brother?" There was even an "Am I not a you know woman and a sister" version as well mm-hmm. for for uh, female figures, and so to fall back on that and sort of put the white hero Lincoln. Uh, in the position of the savior up above that slave who is, who has, who is responding to the slave's petition, right? The slave is asking, am I not a man and a brother? And so along comes Lincoln with the answer, yes, and is in the midst then of raising them up to, or, you know, about to raise them up into freedom. And so this is obviously a narrative that completely ignores the agency of the enslaved themselves, the you know the ways in which they, during the Civil War, um, accelerated the process of emancipation by fleeing slavery, by resisting mm-hmm. slavery themselves, by in a sense you know lead, their actions then leading to the Emancipation Proclamation, which which Lincoln issued you know in draft form in late 1862. Um, so it becomes a, narr- a very one-sided narrative in which the enslaved figure is passive and passively receives the gift of freedom from the great white hero, and therefore kind of a very self-congratulatory narrative for the white elites that were erecting or, or that were contemplating erecting these monuments. Now, the, uh, the Michael Burlingame, uh, author of the the mammoth uh, biography of Lincoln published by Johns Hopkins. Uh, I've gone to many events with him, and whenever the the ball statue is mentioned, he immediately will remind you that the the enslaved figure is rising. He's not crouching. He's rising up. Um, What what do you think of that defense of the – or that interpretation? Well (laughs) – so I'm an art historian, so I look really, really carefully at things, and how we describe things is sort of the coin of the realm for our discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and this figure is not rising. Uh, and I, I, I go to actually great lengths in my description of the figure in the book to talk mm-hmm. about precisely, you know, w- what is the pose that the figure is taking. And it, it is a crouching pose. Uh, he's not pushing himself up in this pose. Uh, the, uh, the sponsors of the monument actually recognized that this was a problematic pose. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they asked the sculptor to make a couple of modifications to it to try to give the figure more agency. But the main thing that he did was to extend one of the arms out into a fist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a, a kind of typical gesture that shows mm-hmm. sort of resolution and defiance in some way, but it it's really overshadowed in this case by the whole composition, by the by his um, crouching posture and and the way it's compared to the standing posture of Lincoln above him. 
Um, so there are there were some examples of uh, sculptors who actually did depict Lincoln in the act of lifting up an enslaved person. So we can actually look at some com- comparisons and see that, uh, but that's not happening in the in the so-called Emancipation Monument. Now, as you point out, then uh, once that monument became part of the public consciousness, 1876, I believe it was dedicated. Uh, there were people like Frederick Douglass who who shared the view that this was not. Uh, particularly inspiring or uplifting to portray the the enslaved person kneeling like this, but uh, you also make the point that this obviated the need to further portray the enslaved figure in future Lincoln sculptures. He could now just have a hand out over nothing, and the audience viewing it implies uh, he's bestowing mm-hmm. freedom on somebody. So so you go from having a crouching figure to having no figure at all. Right, right, because the, the, the pictorial formula was so well-known and well-understood at the time that you're absolutely right. You could actually take the black figure out, and if Lincoln was holding a piece of paper in his hand and looking downward, then that meant it was the Emancipation Proclamation, and he's looking down at the slaves that he's about to free. So it's one of those examples of, you know, of an image that is so commonplace at the time, um, that is so well immediately understood by its audience, you know, that you can have a shorthand version of it. Now, if, if those statues made the black figure disappear, uh, what we'll do now is take a short break, and I want to come back and ask you about the most amazing disappearing act, uh, the disappearance of slavery from the story of the pre-war South as told by post-war Southern monuments. So we'll come back and discuss that with our guest, Kirk Savage, author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race, War, and Monument in 19th Century America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kirk Savage, author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race, War, and Monument in 19th Century America. Uh, Last month, September 2018, was Civil War Talk Radio's most popular month yet, uh, over 50,000 hits during the month. And I imagine all 50,000 people listening are asking, Get to the Confederate monument question. So uh-huh. let me ask you this, Kirk. Uh, you quote uh, in the book. You note that the uh, the, the civil the, the pre-war South was was a slave society. It was all about slavery. Slavery was the South. The South was slavery. And you write quote the business of Confederate commemoration after the war was to smash this equation that South and slavery were equivalent to eliminate slavery from the story. Uh, how how do you go about erasing slavery through monuments? Right, well, first of all, the larger context, you know, monuments tend to be pretty good at erasing <laughs> histories. <laughs> um, and because they focus on certain things, they, they always tend to focus on certain things and erase other, other things. Mm-hmm. And um, so... In this case, uh, there was a very deliberate effort on the part of the organizations, which were mostly, you know, in the South, white women's organizations. Um, There was a very deliberate effort on their part to tell, to divorce the history of the Confederacy and the lost cause from the history of slavery. Uh, And to focus instead on the white figure of the Confederate soldier and the Confederate officer and simply to glorify these men as defenders of their home states and their home territories and states' rights. Uh, So you see it's very, very rare that you see any allusion to slavery on any of these um, monuments. Uh, either in the inscription or in the imagery. There are some very, very few exceptions to that. But for the most part, uh, slavery is simply absent. And it's the beginning of, and a very striking way of representing this idea that slavery was not the cause of the war. Uh, Remarkable kind of transformation, because these were all people who had lived through slavery and the war, and they knew this history, and they proceeded to tell, you know, a completely different, turn that around 180 degrees and tell a completely different story through these heroic monuments. Why was, uh, or or, let me ask, what was the role of of Robert E. Lee, who features in so many of these monuments? Why, Why Lee? 
right. places well, that he never the, visited. Lee was the greatest example of this for them because he, uh, you know, in the story that they told, you know, in the in the version of history that they told, Lee was he was not a political figure, so it would have been much more difficult had they made Davis the central person in Confederate commemoration because, you know, Davis was a huge slave owner and, um, you know, explicit defender of slavery. Uh, Lee was seen as more distant from the institution, even though that, I think, has been, that myth has also been very well challenged in recent scholarship. Um, (laughs) But he could be seen as a, a kind of apolitical figure, a kind of Christian gentleman hero, the kind of person in his person, in the in the in his person and in his character, he represented the Confederacy as um, you know this kind of Christian um, uh, effort, you know, on a, a, a simple matter of him deciding that his loyalty was with his own state rather than with the United States that had sort of perpetrated this um, takeover of uh, the state sovereignty. Now, the, uh, so you have these monuments to, to common soldiers, and I want to ask you more about that in a moment, but also to Robert E. Lee uh, throughout the South, and you, you describe the great... Uh, battle over the uh, uh, the Lee Monument that ends up in Richmond and the, the different designs for it. You also touch on uh, uh, a sort of fleeting effort uh, to uh, incorporate the story of slavery by making it a story of choice of faithful slaves choosing to support their status as chattel, uh, through loyalty to their masters. Did, did that get anywhere at all? So this, this got into a few monuments. It, it's, it's definitely not a major chord of commemoration. Mm-hmm. It's very much a minor chord of commemoration. But it did appear in a few uh, scattered local uh, monuments. And, of course, the, the whole figure of the faithful slave was a very large figure, important figure in in white Southern mythology. Uh, And you see it in literature and prints and music and lots of other places. But in monuments, it was was, uh, a riskier proposition, again, because it raised the issue of slavery. Even just to raise the issue of slavery in, in, in memorials was something that most monument committees wanted to avoid. Um, but So where you see it is in, in, in very kind of idiosyncratic local situations. The, the example that I go into some depth in is in Fort Mill, South Carolina, where there was a, a cotton mill owner who was kind of the patron of the town and kind of ran the town, this small town in South Carolina, with a cotton factory. And he had been, of course, a, a cotton grower before the war um, and had a large slave enslaved labor force working it and so he was very also very invested in 
kind of continuing labor relations in that area, you know, making the transition from an enslaved labor force to what we might, you know, call an exploited labor force after the mm-hmm. war and creating a mythology around that. Um, and so he put up a monument to faithful slaves with names of people uh, of, you know, some of those good old-time slaves that he remembered fondly. Many of them had the same surname that he had, which is interesting. Hmm. <laughs> um, so you see his last name was White, and there you see, you see all these names of uh, Whites, on, you know, people named White on the, inscribed on the memorial. Uh, and it featured a couple of images. You know, one was an image of a, of a field hand resting, um, again, interesting solution. They didn't portray him actually working. They portrayed him resting in the fields. And another one of a mammy with a small child, presumably a white child. Uh, they're kind of eroded away now, so they're hard to see. But uh, these were two kind of classic images uh, of um, what we might call as, you know, the sort of uh, genial race relations that... Uh, white Southerners said existed under slavery. The, the, the mention of the worker not actually working brings up the point you make uh, in, in the last chapter about the, the numerous soldier monuments, uh, of which Silent Sam in Chapel Hill here in North Carolina was a recent late example. We don't know what the government will do about the uh, knocking down of that monument, but the uh, uh, the soldiers portrayed in almost all the monuments you see, and, and listeners, you've seen this everywhere, uh, are at parade rest. They're they're soldiers, but they're not fighting. Right. Why, so why is a, that? So this is a typical formula for monuments in towns, cities and towns, and small towns. Um, it's a little different on battlefields. I will say that. On True. battlefields, you had more. Uh, you see more militant images uh, emerging. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but in in the towns, the I think it's very important to represent these figures as not aggressive. Um, but they were meant to be defenders, um, and so they're vigilant and they are, you know, proud and erect and vigilant. But they they don't cross over into the territory of military aggression. And that kind of imagery of aggression is very important to avoid that imagery. Uh, of course, each side, you know, in the Civil War accused each other of being aggressors. And um, in, in, the, in the case of public monuments, then, to make the case for your side and your soldiers, it was preferable to make them look um, rather like vigilant defenders of the of their home and hearth rather than you know imperialists <laughs> it, but you know they're I had not noticed this before reading this they're they're not standing strictly at attention uh, which would be very military but they're not just lounging around camp either they're at that that you know intermediate phase where, uh, you make the argument this shows they have agency, they are independent uh, uh, citizen soldiers, they're not you know, robots standing in a rigid line. Uh, but they came back from a war in which they essentially were 
uh, if not robots in a line, a cannon fodder by the end of the war in the wilderness and you know, the overland campaign in Petersburg. The individual doesn't have much agency when you go charging across an open field toward a Confederate trench uh, or, or across the fields uh, toward the Emmitsburg Road. You are just a cog in a machine, and the many balls don't know who they're going to hit, and your character has nothing to do with if you're, whether you're going to live or die. It's all random. Uh, but now here, they're individuals again. I thought that was quite right. an interesting argument. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yes, uh, you know, a large part of my argument is, you know, it's interesting the ways in which both the, mon- the monuments, what the monuments of the Confederacy and the Union share. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that they share is this attempting to deal with the, the issue of the, the, um, the way in which the war deprived these soldiers of the capacity to be heroes, mm-hmm. you know that that they had to be a formula had to be found to make them look again, in some what measure, as individuals capable of heroic activity, and um, the parade rest pose was a really great kind of compromise solution because again as you say it doesn't they don't look like they are just simply following military orders um, but on the other hand um, they are represented really as men who are going about their duty doing their ordinary duty mm-hmm. uh, to the state and preserving your individuality at the same time. And so it's a kind of profoundly democratic kind of democratization of the public monument, which is happening at this time, because before this time, it was really only officers who were, you know, it was really only named heroes who got monuments. Mm-hmm. So the idea of an anonymous generic soldier being represented on a pedestal was a totally new idea. And I think it was very much a response to the large-scale mobilization uh, that took place, the mass death that took place during the Civil War, and to the fact that these men had gone through an experience that really was actually dehumanizing. So the monuments, in a way, rehumanized them. But at the same time, uh, well, as you point out, North and South can have the same kinds of monuments, their soldiers face the same kinds of battlefield challenges, certainly. But you can't have monuments to African-American soldiers. The USCT cannot be monumentalized because then you can't dodge the political question, the slavery question. Uh, We, unfortunately, have to dodge that question. I'm seeing that our time is just about up. And uh, there is so much more in this book. so, listeners, order yourself a copy. This is really an interesting book, and you will be uh, ahead of your angry neighbors when you discuss the monuments online, because you'll actually know something about it if you read this. Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race, War, and Monument in 19th Century America uh, by Kirk Savage. Kirk, it has been uh, a real pleasure having you on tonight. Thank you for uh, uh, doing this. Oh, you're welcome. The time flew by. I wish we could have had another hour. (laughs) (laughs) As do I, and and, uh, listeners, I, I hope you do too. But listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.